Let's turn to God's Word now. Isaiah 29, 15-24 is our Old Testament text. Interestingly, um, last Lord's Day, our Old Testament text was Isaiah 29, 1-14, and our New Testament text was Matthew 15, 1-20. And then as I was studying for this week, uh, the, the sermon text, Matthew 15 here, I, I found that the Old Testament text that really fit well was the second half of Isaiah 29. Um, it's wonderful the way the Lord's Word ties together. Uh, so Isaiah 29, 15-24. Now let's give our attention now to God's holy word. Woe to those who seek deep to hide their counsel far from the Lord, and their works are in the dark. They say, who sees us? And who knows us? Surely you have things turned around. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? For shall the thing made say of him who made it, he did not make me? Or shall the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? It is not yet a very little while till Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field be esteemed as a forest. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The humble also shall increase their joy in the Lord, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. For the terrible one is brought to nothing, the scornful one is consumed, and all who watch for iniquity are cut off, who make a man an offender by a word and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate, and turn aside the just by empty words. Therefore thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall not, not now be ashamed, nor shall his face now grow pale, but when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will hallow my name and hallow the Holy One of Jacob and fear the God of Israel. These also who erred in, under, in spirit will come to understanding, and those who complained will learn doctrine. In our New Testament text, Matthew fifteen twenty-one through 39. Let's give our attention to God's word. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered and said to her, O oh, woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, and went up on the mountain and sat down there. Then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others. And they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. 
Now Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Then his disciples said to him, where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few little fish. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks, broke them and gave them to his disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitude. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets full of the fragments that were left. Now those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. And he sent away the multitude, got into the boat, and came to the region of Magdala. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Lord, we wait on your word now. We would have open ears, open hearts, humble, teachable, pliable, not stubbornly resisting your word, but stubbornly grasping hold of Christ. So grant us this grace, we pray, by your Spirit's power. In his name, amen. What do you do with Jesus? How do you respond to Jesus? Matthew's Gospel is showing us Jesus and is showing us how people respond to Jesus. And and Matthew is doing this, the Lord inspiring him to do this, so that we can see who Jesus is and so that we can know how, how do we respond to him, how should we respond to him. In chapter 15, throughout chapter 15, it's that response to Jesus That's really being brought to the forefront here. How are you going to respond to who he is, what his kingdom is, and what he's doing? Last week, we saw one response in the first part of chapter 15. The Pharisees, in their response, uh, these are the religious leaders of, of Israel, right? They come to Jesus in the early part of chapter 15. They're accusing him of breaking the tradition of the elders, they're, they're, they're accusing him of this sin. But Jesus turns it around and says, you're being hypocrites. You're using this tradition of the elders to break God's commandment about honoring your elders. He shows them their, their hypocrisy here. He's tearing off the mask. So you can see these, these are just hypocrites. They're full of pride. They're selfish. They're seeking their own glory. They've got this fine outward show of piety, religion, but it's just hiding this, uh, this rotten heart of, of pride and sin and selfishness. So the Pharisees are offended by Jesus for doing this. They're furious with him for this, and they're out to get him. That's one response. We also saw the disciples uh, last week as well in the first part of chapter 15. Uh, they, they, uh, they're, they're, they're not really grasping what's going on. Jesus tells them a brief parable and they cannot grasp it. And Jesus says to them in verse 16, he says, are you also still without understanding? Um, they're responding to Jesus, not like the Pharisees, right? They're, they're following him. Uh, there's faith, but, but, it, but it's, a, it's a faltering faith. It's a faith that one minute is there, the next it's not. Uh, uh, followed followed by, 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 by doubt uh, and confusion. And this isn't the way it should be, is it? Of all the people who should get Jesus and get what he's doing and welcome him with open arms, it should be these guys, the Pharisees and the disciples, both of them, right? They, they, these are the Jews. This is their promised Messiah. They've got a whole Old Testament promising that this Christ would come. 
but he comes and uh, they don't seem to get it. And the disciples, most of all, I think, because they've got this front row seat. They're courtside. Right? They're seeing what's going on. Seeing all these miracles that Jesus is doing and hearing his sermons and his conversations. But they don't seem to get it. And as we see in the text before us this morning, loved ones, it is, it is often those who shouldn't believe who seem to believe. And it's often those who should believe who don't seem to get it. As Jesus reveals himself here in this chapter in and, and, and yet more glory and yet more clarity, showing his pity, showing his power, showing his kingdom, the question the Holy Spirit is pressing on our hearts is, well, what about you? How are you going to respond to Jesus? With faith and trust and understanding? The text before us here in this second part of the chapter, chapter 15, gives us three ways, teaches us three ways to respond to Jesus in faith. Three ways to respond to Jesus in faith. Number one, seek mercy from the Son of David. Seek mercy from the Son of David. This is verses 21 to 28. We pick up the story in chapter 15, verse 21. Uh, Jesus is is pulling back again from the public view. Uh, He's trying to find a quiet place. Perhaps trying to trying to get uh, there's this been this controversy. He wants it to blow over. He doesn't want to uh, press the gas too hard on, on on fueling the controversy here with the Pharisees because it's not time yet. So he he pulls back and he goes actually out of Israel to the north up to the coast of the Mediterranean Sea to this region of Tyre and Sidon. Not not part of Israel. It's outside of Israel. Yeah, it's it's uh, this Gentile territory, not somewhere an Israelite would, would typically go to get away. But but Jesus takes his disciples there for some time, and it's this area that was used to be way back in Old Testament times Canaanite territory. This is where the bad guys are from. Jesus takes his disciples there. Interestingly, uh, this is the same region that Elijah the prophet, after his controversy with the the, the hypocritical and false rulers of Israel, he flees for refuge to the same region. Jesus retracing his steps here. Jesus, the greater prophet, following, following in his footsteps. So Jesus takes his disciples to this region of Tyre and Sidon. And they're there. And then this woman comes to them. This Canaanite woman comes to them. Um, Mark's gospel has the same account, the same story. But in Mark's gospel, she's called a Syrophoenician woman. That's the contemporary term for someone from this, this area. But, but Matthew uses this word Canaanite, a woman of Canaan, a Canaanite. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's strange. This is, this is an old-fashioned word. It would be sort of like us talking about someone from England and calling them an Anglo-Saxon. Right? That's what you called them a thousand years ago. That's not what they're called today. They're English. But, but Matthew is, is making this point, right? This woman is a Canaanite. What does that word bring to mind? Well, he's highlighting the fact this woman is not only not a Jew, her ancestors were fiercely fighting the Jews for, 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 for so many years. They were, they're, the, they're the ancient enemies of the people of Israel. When Joshua brings the people into the promised land, he's fighting the Canaanites. When David is setting up his kingdom, he's, he's fighting Canaanites. But now, here comes this Canaanite woman. Not fighting against 
Jesus and the kingdom of God, but this woman outside the covenant of grace, a woman despised by Jews, uh, a woman descended from Israel's ancient enemy, she comes, and she comes straight up to Jesus asking for mercy. She comes up to Jesus and she cries out to him. The, the, Greek, the sense of the Greek here is that she cried out repeatedly over and over. She, she continued crying out to him, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. She's asking for mercy because her daughter is possessed by a demon. And as, as, as we see her cry out to Jesus, she gives us a model of faith, brothers and sisters, a model of what faith should look like, what our faith should look like. Uh, she has this faith in Jesus that's marked by a profound humility in herself and a great confidence also in the Lord. Notice, first of all, uh, with me, how she addresses Jesus, the title she uses for Jesus. She calls him uh, the son of David. That's, a, that's an important title for, for, in, in Matthew's gospel. It's the title he starts with. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, he says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. All right, this, is, this is one of Matthew's go-to titles. He really likes to, to record when people use this title for Jesus because it's a, such a clear title that Jesus is the, the long-promised king, right? King David, the great king of the Old Testament. God promises him in 2 Samuel 7 he's going to have a son who reigns on the throne forever. And Matthew's saying that king is here. The forever king, son of David, is, is here it's a very Jewish title. It's a very Jewish uh, uh, name, name for, for our Lord Jesus. And here's this Canaanite woman, right? Her ancestors, the ancient enemies of David, but now she's coming to the son of David, uh, looking to him for mercy. She's bowing down to him, uh, bowing down to Jesus and asking for, for his mercy. And she's giving her allegiance to, to him, even though she, uh, she, she comes from this pagan region. It's a good way to address Jesus. And it's a good thing she's doing, crying out for mercy to him, the son of David. She understands who he is. But how does Jesus respond to her cry for mercy? Verse 23, he answered her, not a word. He doesn't respond. He just ignores her. That's shocking, isn't it? We've seen so many instances of his compassion Usually, it seems he doesn't even wait for you to ask. He moves towards the suffering. He's moved with his deep compassion. And he goes and he heals and he saves and he shows mercy. Back in chapter 9, two blind men come to him and say, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And he has mercy on them. But now here comes this Canaanite woman and she asks for mercy. And he doesn't even answer her. Is he being unkind? Does he think that this woman, the Canaanite, is beneath him? Not worth his time? Is he callous? Is he tired? No, he loves this woman. He loves her daughter. And he loves her uh, so much that he's not answering her. He's testing her. He's, he's drawing out her faith. John Calvin comments in this, and he's saying that... that, uh, that um, even, as he's, uh, even as he's doing this... He is also, right, he, he is God and he's at work in her heart to draw out her faith in him through this. So it's because of his compassion, right? He's, he's not leaving her daughter to suffer. Uh, he, he's going to act, but not yet. He's, he's drawing out her faith through his, through, his, through his lack of an answer. 
Remember that, loved ones. As you come to the Lord, as you cry out to Him, you don't receive an answer. It's not a sign that He doesn't care. He loves you. He's drawing out your faith. The disciples, though, they quickly get annoyed by this woman. She keeps crying out. She won't let it go. She won't leave them alone. Uh, So they say in verse 23, send her away, for she cries out after us. Now, in the Greek, the, the word sent away can, can mean, uh, it can mean release her, as in release her, send her away, or release her, do, do what she's asking. Just, just do it so that she leaves us alone. I think that's really what, what, the, what they're saying. Just, just give her what she wants so that she leaves us alone and stops nagging. Um, and now at this point, Jesus does speak. He does respond. But again, his words aren't yet what this woman wants to hear. He says, uh, he says, uh, he says he's doing a couple of things here as he answers. First, he's making an important theological point. He says to her, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus has a clear understanding of what his mission is that God has given him. Um, and it's not yet for the gospel to go to all the nations. It, it will be soon. We, we've seen this preview to Matthew's gospel, the Magi, the nations, bring tribute to the infant Jesus, right? And we see Jesus uh, heal the centurion's daughter, a Roman. We, we see Jesus at the end of the gospel, right? The great proclamation telling the church, go to the nations, make disciples of all of them. But not yet, he's saying. It's not, not that time yet. Um, that time hasn't come. Jesus' mission right now is for the lost sheep of Israel, for this wandering and wayward people. So it would not be right for Jesus to turn his energies towards the Gentiles full time, give them all his focus. But he's also, he's also doing this here. He's, he's continuing, as we saw, he's continuing to test this woman to draw out her faith, to, to strengthen her faith, to test her faith, uh, even as the God of sovereign grace is at work in her heart. Uh, to, to, to work faith in her. But the woman won't be, won't be put off. She comes near to Jesus, and she bows down to him, treating him like the king she's just professed him to be, and she says, uh, she says to him, Lord, help me. So that was just a simple prayer, isn't it? Just a pathetic, simple cry. She understands there's nowhere else I can go for help, no one else who can save me. Only you can do this for me. Uh, And again, it's commendable. Her persistence in her faith is commendable. But Jesus, again, Jesus again holds at at arm's length for a minute. He again puts her off for a minute. He says it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. To change my mission from the Gentile, uh, from the Jews to the Gentiles would be to be like taking the dinner you cook for the kids and dumping it in the dog's dish. Right? You'd have the priorities wrong. He's saying this is not my mission yet. And, and the implication for this woman is you do not deserve the mercy of Christ. Uh, you, don't, you, don't, you don't deserve, you don't have a claim on the, on, on the son of David. You're, you're, not, you're not part of his covenant family. You don't have a right to have him use his power to free your daughter from this demon. What he's saying to her is, 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 uh, is this, that, that she is a sinner. She comes from a long line of sinners that she is part of the ancient enemy of God's people. And really, this coming of the son of David should strike terror in her heart uh, because he is the great judge of the enemies of God's people. Now, how would you respond if you heard someone say such things about you? 
Well, that's not true. I deserve better. Right? I, 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 how, how dare you compare me to a dog? How, how dare you say I'm not worth your time? Um, that's probably what, what I would have said. What does she say? It's wonderful. Yes, Lord. It's wrong to take, Jesus says it's wrong to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. She agrees. Yes, Lord. I am a dog. I am a Gentile. I have no claim on you. I have no rights before you. I am a sinner. I don't deserve your salvation. I don't deserve your compassion. I deserve your wrath, not your grace. See her humility here. Right, this profound humility. What a contrast from the Pharisees we saw earlier. Right, that mask of hypocrisy, all that pride in their hearts, all that self-righteousness. None of it in this woman. She bows before Jesus with this completely and brutally honest assessment of herself before him. This broken and contrite heart. She's poor in spirit, isn't she? Loved ones, this is, the, this is the first mark of saving faith. This is the foundational mark of saving faith. Honest understanding that you deserve nothing but the wrath of God. That you have no right to His pity or His mercy or His grace. That God owes you nothing. That your heart is broken and humble before Him. And this is not only the first mark of being a Christian and, and of having faith. This is the ongoing and increasing mark. The longer you go on as a Christian, the greater your sense of this should be, the, the, the deeper sense of humility you should feel. And you're undeserving before the Lord. Does that mark your faith? This, this profound humility, this proper understanding of yourself before the Lord. But there's more we see. Not only this deep humility in this woman's faith, we also see this great, great confidence in her. This boldness in her. We've already seen it. She keeps coming to Jesus, but especially in her answer that she gives to Jesus. Now she says, yes, Lord, yes, I agree. I am a dog and I don't deserve your mercy. Yet, she goes on, even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. She's saying, I, I'm humble in myself, but I'm confident in you, Lord. I know who I am, a sinner, but I also know who you are. Son of David, the great and gracious king. Right? She is so confident in his mercy. She's so confident that he came to seek and save the lost, that he came full of compassion for sinners, gracious towards sinners. And again, this is how this is also coupled with that humility is what should mark our faith, loved ones. On the first day of coming to faith in Christ and all the way through, this, this, this great boldness and confidence in the surpassing grace, the abundant grace of Jesus for you. No confidence in yourself, but total confidence in Jesus. Complete assurance that He loves you and that He is giving His kingdom to you if you come and ask by faith. Jesus sees this woman's faith, uh, this remarkable faith, and this humility coupled with confidence, and he says, oh, woman, great is your faith. Right? This is what he's been drawing out by testing her and, and, and putting this off. Right? He's, he's been drawing this out, and, and now he sees this beautiful faith that the Spirit has worked in her, and he says, oh, woman, great is your faith. 
And he grants her request, and her daughter is instantly, instantly healed. Loved ones, this is the kind of faith that our Lord Jesus loves. This is what it is to be poor in spirit. Is this how you respond to Jesus? This deep humility and this great confidence in him. The second thing that should mark our faith is the next thing we see in the chapter here. Uh, And this is worship. Our second point is that we should stand in awe before the God of Israel. Stand in awe before the God of Israel. This is verses 29 through, through 31. So Jesus, uh, he heals this woman, and then after some time, they go on from the region of Tyre and Sidon, this Canaanite region. They go to the Sea of Galilee again. Um, Matthew's Gospel doesn't tell us exactly where on the Sea of Galilee they are, but uh, Mark's Gospel in chapter 7, telling us the same story, tells us they're in the Decapolis, which is on the, uh, the southeastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and it's a largely Gentile region. Not many Jews here, mostly, mostly Gentiles mostly people outside of God's covenant family. And yet the people over here have also heard of Christ's works. Uh, they've heard of his, of his mercy. They've heard of his power. Um, remember, Jesus heals the two demon-possessed men back in Matthew chapter 8. Well, so those men stay there, and they spread the word. Mark's gospel tells us, Mark 5.20, that at least one of them goes, and he tells everyone in that whole region, this Gentile region on the southeastern side of the Sea of Galilee, about what Christ did for him. Uh, So when Jesus comes to this region now, uh, people recognize him, they find out he's here, they're excited, and they go tell their friends and their friends' friends, and they get all the sick, right? And they bring them to Jesus, and all the lame and the blind and the deaf and the mute and any other disease, they bring it, they, they, they lay these people at Jesus' feet. And Jesus heals all of them. We've seen this time and again in Matthew's Gospel. He has these wonderful, just these little short sections where he says, and Jesus, and Jesus healed all of them. Or they, they keep bringing him more, more sick, and Jesus keeps on, on healing him. And this goes on for three days beside the Sea of Galilee. What, what, a, what, a, what, what a spectacular three days those must have been for those people living there, seeing, seeing with their own eyes Jesus healing these people who've been sick and suffering for, for so, so long. Must have been a joyful, joyful scene, right? These are Gentiles, but the Son of David is, is coming here too. His kingdom is, is spreading here too. They're seeing. Remember, Jesus, um, Jesus' healing is not just a, it's not just a humanitarian mission. It's not just alleviating suffering, which is a good and worthwhile thing to do, and He is doing that. Um, but 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 it's it's more than that. It's not just like a visit to the doctors. Uh, that something qualitatively different is going on when Jesus is bringing healing. He, he's establishing the kingdom when he heals. But he's, 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 he's giving you a taste of the kingdom of heaven when he heals. He's giving you a, a foreshadowing of his own resurrection from the dead when he, when he brings healing. He's giving you a, a foreshadowing of your resurrection from the dead when he, when he heals um, in, these, in these ways. We read this earlier. In Isaiah 29, 17, one of many prophecies saying that the, the, the Christ will, will come and make all things right. It says, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. And that is what is happening here. The kingdom is coming even to these Gentiles, and they're glorying in the God of Israel. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? It's a Gentile worshiping not just God or the Lord or the Heavenly Father, but the God of Israel. 
As far as I can tell, this, isn't, this name for God isn't used anywhere else in Matthew's Gospel or anywhere else in the New Testament except once in, in Luke chapter 1. This phrase, God of Israel. Right? It happens all over the place in the Old Testament, but, but not often in the New at all. Matthew's making a point here that, that these Gentiles... They're turning from their gods, their false gods, their false religions that do nothing for them, and they're turning to the one true living God of Israel. And as as Jesus is is bringing this little foretaste of the kingdom of heaven going out to all the nations, they're saying, yes, he's our God. This is going to be our kingdom too. We're going to be part of this kingdom too. They're glorifying and praising God for these things, for his goodness and his grace, that he has even sent the kingdom to them. Brothers and sisters, as we look at their response to Jesus here, we should, take, we should take note that they're exalting in God. It's just the overflow of their heart. They see what he's doing, and they are full of joy, and worship is just pouring out of them, glorifying God for this. Um, is that, are we doing that? Are you doing that? This is another mark of, of faith. Worshiping him in response for what he's done overflowing with with praise and and a grateful heart, a warm heart towards him for what he's done. We should be rejoicing because the kingdom of heaven has come even here to Lymington. And we've seen Christ. We might say, well, it'd be easier to rejoice like they were rejoicing if we turned on the news and we found out that there was someone at Sebago Lake who was healing everybody. And you could hop in your car and you can drive your, 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 your ailing mother there, and, and, and they would touch your mother, and she'd be better. Right? Then you'd start worshiping the God of Israel. Then you'd really be rejoicing, right? If we saw Jesus doing what, uh, what they got to see him doing. But should our hearts be any less moved than theirs when we've seen what we've seen of our Lord Jesus Christ? They're seeing a foreshadow of the resurrection, Right? We can turn on the Gospels and we can look by faith and we can see the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ rising from the dead in glory, establishing this kingdom of heaven, this kingdom of heaven that has begun. We, we, we have so much reason to rejoice and worship and glorify the God of Israel. To see his compassion, his pity, his power on display in our Lord Jesus, especially in his resurrection. We should be full of hearts, overflowing with delight in the Lord, standing in awe of what he's done, worshiping and glorifying him. This is how the Gentiles here are responding to Jesus. And so should we, loved ones. There's one more response to consider. Um, This is the response of Jesus' disciples. And this is the example of what not to do. Uh, so uh, the third, the third point this, this morning: study, study the pity and power of Jesus. Study the pity and power of Jesus. Verses thirty-two to thirty-nine. So Jesus is there on the, beside the, the lake. He's, he's healing these uh, these Gentiles for three days. Um, by the third day, it's time for him. He decides it's time to move on with his ministry from this place. Uh, but he has compassion on the people. He doesn't want to send them away without food. They've been here three days. They've exhausted any food supplies they brought with them. And uh, Jesus has compassion on them and doesn't want them to go hungry and get faint. They're far from any, any source of food. They're far from any town. Um, and he has compassion on them. We've, we've seen this note sounded so many times by Matthew throughout the gospel. His compassion. Uh, it's, it's mentioned so frequently that our Lord Jesus has compassion on us. 
on our bodies as well as our souls. He's compassionate for us when we go hungry. He's compassionate in our human weakness, and he knows it himself. But he doesn't immediately solve the problem himself. He could, of course, but he waits, and he calls his disciples to himself. He says to them in verse 32, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. What's he doing? He's telling his disciples about his compassion, of course, but I think he's also trying to draw out their faith, test them. What should the disciples say? Have they seen this situation before? (laughs) Not long ago, right? Reading time, it was about five minutes ago. If you're reading through the Gospel of Matthew, right, it's only a few minutes ago. Maybe for them it was a few months. But no matter, if it had been many months, right, they should remember a very similar situation. Out in the wilderness, no food, huge crowd. Jesus fed 5,000 men in the wilderness by his power. And so here they are, right? Um, Should they not expect him to do it again? But they seem completely forgetful of this. They seem to forget his power. They seem also unaware that, that, that he is giving good things to Gentiles as well. Um, they're boxed in by the boundaries of their own unbelief once again. They don't have an expansive view of what's possible in the situation by the power of God. They can't think of a solution. They just are looking through the lens of their own limited ability at this situation. Uh, they are not aware of Jesus. Uh, they're, not, they're, not, they're not grasping the implications of what it means that Jesus is with them at this moment. There's this baseline presupposition of doubt, it seems, in them. Their basic starting point here seems to be that Jesus will not or cannot do what needs to be done for his kingdom. But they've seen so many miracles. They've seen so much pity and so much power from Jesus. But they're still slow to understand. So Jesus asks them, well, how much food do you have? He doesn't come down hard on them here. He's gentle and gracious. He just asks them what, what they have for food. They give him what they have. Seven loaves, a few fish. Once again, Jesus does the same thing he did before. has the multitude sit down. He blesses the food, breaks the food, gives it to his disciples. And as it's passed row to row through 4,000, 8,000, however many people, there's enough. And it keeps going and going. And there's plenty for all of them by his almighty power. Once again, this abundance of provision. He's having the Gentiles taste, this sweet foretaste of the great messianic banquet at the end of the age. And even you are invited to come and taste the abundance of the grace of God and His kingdom in Jesus Christ. So loved ones, as we, as we, look, at, as we look at the disciples here and their failure to respond in faith, um, we want to ask, well, how do we respond not like them? How, how, how do we avoid that response? Um, what do we need to do? Study His pity. And study his power. Study Jesus' pity. Study Jesus' power. We need to see over and over, even as Matthew tells us over and over, how compassionate Jesus is, how full of grace he is, how ready to save he is. We should study the scope of his grace, how far it reaches as well to the ends of the earth, to, far enough for every, every sinner. Um, we, should, we should study that. We should meditate on his pity and compassion. Until, until our hearts are deeply convinced of it. And also we should study his power. We should get our hearts full of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a, a deep conviction that Jesus 
is able to do whatever he chooses to do. That he is able to do whatever it takes to bring his kingdom the way he desires to do it. He has limitless resources, limitless power, divine power to accomplish every purpose. Is that how you think about him? And his, his work in your life, his work in our church, his work through our church. That his pity knows no end and his power knows no end. The disciples are, are so slow to see this. They're so close to Jesus. And yet sometimes they seem so far away from Jesus, spiritually speaking. They make this mistake. Brothers and sisters, we are close to Jesus, right? We're in the church. We're in the pews. We're in the Word. We're in the Bible studies. We're close to Him. Don't make the same mistake. Study Him. Study His heart, His pity, His power. Come to know Him. Pray that God would open your eyes to see who He is. You would have this, 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 this great faith like the Canaanite woman. Right? The, con- the, the humility and the confidence. Like the Gentiles worshiping Him for what He's done. Um, not, not, not the kind of faith that's a leap in the dark, a blind conviction, but a full-sighted view of Christ and all that He is. And you would trust Him. Loved ones, do you, do you have that? Do you know Christ? Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Gospel. We thank You for our Lord Jesus. We thank You that He is such a glorious and sufficient Savior for us. Lord, we pray that You would indeed open our eyes to see and to trust Him. In Jesus' name, Amen.